Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Everybody and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host Clayton Fletcher here in New York, and as far as I know, our guest this week is also here in New York. He is one of the most requested guests, uh, return guests, someone that uh, all of his episodes we seem to get like a bump in uh, the downloads. So I'm very happy to welcome back to the program my good friend Alex Fitzgerald. Alex, how you been, buddy? I'm good. You're making me blush. I'm happy to be back here. No, they love you. TPE Nation. Uh, I mean, you are you're a god around here as far as <laughs> as, as far as we're concerned. Thank so thanks for taking the time to do this. How is the uh, quarantine life treating you? What's going on? Oh, I'm good, man. I'm just, you know, happy to be healthy. And apparently there's a lot of outdoor things to do in New York City. So Went to the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens, Governor's <laughs> Island, Ellis Island, Central Park Zoo, all that stuff. You know, just trying to stay sane, fostering a cat, playing oh, with that cool. guy. Yeah, trying to play with him a little bit more because, yeah, when you're taking care of a little creature, it kind of helps you forget everything that's going on. How you been? Yeah, good, man. You know, just uh, I've been making a lot of trips to New Jersey. I've been uh, partaking of the uh, online poker offerings over there. There seems to be another big tournament every month, and so, uh, you know, the listeners know I've been updating them as far as how that's been going. It's been very swingy, as tournament poker generally is, but I recently broke a streak of 25 consecutive tournaments without a cash, and nice. so <laughs> that wasn't fun. <laughs> what was crazy is the next four I played, I cashed in all the of those, so it's like I had an 0 for 25, and then I had a 4 for 4, so... I mean, nothing to write home about, no final tables or anything, but yeah, it's just so crazy. I was telling people um, in our last episode, actually, that I I recently was, you know, I was on that bad downswing, but years ago, many years ago, I actually had a streak of 36 consecutive tournaments with without a single cash. And, nice. And, you know, that was back when tournaments used to pay 10% of the field, and now they generally pay a little closer to 15 but, you know, I almost got there again. 25 is uh, not easy to do. I'm pretty proud of that one. I wear it like a badge of honor. I'm pretty sure I got to 50 at one time. No so way. I think I got you beat. <laughs> but I'm pretty – that was back during the 10% days. And uh, I was very much playing go big or go home. But, yeah, these new payout structures are so strange. I, I've been doing – I've always believed the way you should play poker is 90% bread and butter. 10% swinging for the fences. So if you can find private games, go for them. But with 10% of your playing time, you should be playing tournaments, swinging for the fences. And it used to be lose all your money or heaven in tournaments. And now it's so weird. The last eight Sundays I played, I think I was down like 20 bucks after all eight of the Sundays <laughs> together because if you, if you play solid, you end up cashing a lot, but I never I kept finishing ninth and seventh and fourth and just and when I did finish fourth, it was a small tournament 
And at the end, I thought, this is so weird. I didn't mind because I genuinely do like playing poker. It's very fun to me. But it was so weird to play just Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and a lot on ACR. And you'd think, like, everybody's playing bonkers there. You would think you'd be going broke somewhere. But, yeah, eventually I did have uh, a Sunday where I just bricked everything. And then that was like, ah, this feels more like the old days. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so have you been playing a lot lately? Are you are you doing Sundays now? What What's your schedule these days? I, uh, I try to throw up some tournaments on Sunday. Just I want a big win in a big field just to walk my students through it and all that it's if you think about actually making money from poker and I have a monthly expense that I have to get to right you know there's rent and then there's health insurance and then there's all of that probably the most stable thing in the world is not tournaments with thousands of people in them so that doesn't <laughs> tend to that doesn't tend to be uh, my focus but it's also really good for keeping you interested and it's just I, I imagine when you're playing, I, I've been taking I, I've been taking lessons with a solver coach, and that stuff is so intense. It's amazing how much you're shutting down, check raising fan, etc. But tournaments and loose cash games with recreational players are so fun because you just get to fire out and bomb all the time. That's incredible for motivation. You get to play so many hands because they play worse ranges, big wide open ranges, especially from the big blind, and then you get to bet big all the time. They have mostly high cards. Big cards, fire big, get them to fold. If they have high cards 50 to 60% of the time, then a three-fourths bet only needs to work 42.8% of the time. Oh, they called on the flop? Okay, they have a ton of pairs. The bet should be big then. If you're bluffing, it costs money to get pairs to fold. If you're value betting, you should be betting big since your opponent has a ton of pairs. And I really like that in tournaments, even if I'm not, you know, even if I'm finishing ninth and I, I, uh, uh, in one of the uh, bigger like Sunday majors, it was got really close and didn't do enough. And that was frustrating. But all the other times, it wasn't that frustrating because it's just so fun to see what can I get people to fold to? What can I get people to call? And that creativity gets me fired up. Whereas I guess cash games, more of a meditation and being pa being patient and paying attention is 90% of that game. And that's not exactly as taxing. Yeah, for sure. I find cash games, especially after tournaments, like suppose I'm in Vegas for the World Series and I've played like 30 tournaments by mid-July and I just settle in and just, you know, fire up a 5-10 at Bellagio or whatever. It just feels so chill compared to, you know, I'm not worried yes. about the blinds increasing or, you know, what what my chip stack is relative to the field or, you know, when when are we going to get into the money? You can just kind of as you say, meditate on it. Not to say that cash games don't have ebbs and flows, but it's really more about, I think a cash game is a lot of just kind of being patient, boring, like things are boring for a long time and then they get super exciting for like a minute and then they're super boring again for a little while. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of that kind of ebb and flow where I feel like the tournament game is uh, generally, at least for people that play my style, which I think, you're probably closer to my style than any other coach on the site. Uh, you know, cause I, I tend to go for it. You know, maybe I don't swing for the fences 10% of the time. Maybe I swing for the fences 90% of the time because I just don't, I mean, I never am playing with money that 
I need like I'm not trying to play to make my rent. Although this year, yeah, not to digress, but obviously, with, <laughs> yeah, with, it's with, yeah, things have changed, and uh, you know, poker has been a, a much larger part of my income than it used to be. Right. Um, but you know, honestly, Alex, I haven't really changed my style. You know, I still play within my bankroll, so I think you should play at a stake where you can afford to swing for the fences, and you know, not you should never be sweating like, oh, if I don't cash in this tournament, I'm in trouble. Yes, because then your creativity goes out the window, and more than that, you don't learn anything. And it was interesting, when you were talking about cash games, what made me think about what I thought about that is, did you play a lot of cash before all of this started? Because you have a lot of reps with handling people in your other profession, and I've noticed people who perform are people who work in business, are people in customer service, are people who have to deal with people on a regular basis in live cash games. That is a huge asset because maybe the guy's a net eight hours of the day, but this one hour he's pissed off for some reason and no one really knows why. And if nobody else is picking up on that, you can really take a big pot off of them. Uh, off of them. But do you play much live cash? Normally? Yeah, I do. I do. I play a good amount. Um, lately I've kind of been switching to PLO for, for cash games. Nice. And so, yeah, it's really fun because, you know, I'm good at flipping, but <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> that's a good skill. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's a little bit different. I don't think reads are quite as important in PLO. They just don't come up as much because, yeah. you know, it's just kind of four cards. Everybody always sort of has something. Um yeah. so it's hard to tell whether he's just excited because he has a rap or is he's excited because he has the nuts or whatever. But yeah, back in the day, I used to grind a lot of, you know, kind of low to mid like two five five ten i got up to like ten twenty five no limit hold them at, at one point um mm -hmm. but i never played any higher than that but yeah i found especially if i play long sessions with the same guys kind of chatting them up a little bit and uh you know getting into that relaxed atmosphere of okay well we're just here at this table and you're gonna win some pots i'm gonna win some pots it's kind of uh, it's just a different vibe than the tournament. I feel like in tournaments people are so much more cutthroat and so less inclined to tell me anything about themselves. But when you're sitting there relaxing at a cash game, you order food at the table, you know that whole kind of atmosphere. Sometimes we even get a round of drinks. Then that's when people start to come out of their shell, and then I can sort of get uh, more of a sense of who they are and how much the money means to them. That's I think that's the key. Is you know who's going to be able to call you down light and who isn't? Mm -hmm. That's that's ninety percent of it for me. Yeah, and yeah, getting people talking like you were saying is so important. But yeah, I I digress. We were talking about uh, tournaments. You were asking me. <laughs> Sorry, I kind of went off on a jag. But uh, you, that's how we yeah. do it here. You know how this <laughs> podcast works. We don't have a we don't have an agenda. We're just gonna chit chat and then we're gonna talk about some hands. <laughs> Yes, sir. But yeah, to answer your question that you asked me a while ago, and then I got very excited talking about poker, as I am prone to doing. Uh, yeah, I'm booting off tournaments on occasion. Sunday's fun, and not a ton, but still very fun to be playing them. Yeah, I've been telling our listeners lately, I, I recently won, a few weeks ago, I won a uh, $100 PKO on ACR. Nice. Yeah, it was awesome. It, there were just a lot of really interesting spots because you kind of have – basically, I find that the players at that level on that site fall into one of two categories. I feel like there's the guys that are that are really just trying to knit it up 
and get into the money, and then they start taking chances. And then there's just like the guys that seem to be, I don't know, from the sports betting world or some other world that are just all <laughs> yeah. about getting it all in every hand. And just, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> there doesn't seem to be any any middle ground. Have you found that as well? I find what is most interesting to me about American regs is they have a real difficulty folding as they go deeper into the hand. And that's not something you see with more experienced players in other parts of the world. And that's really interesting because you'll see nitty players. What I have a hard time with on America's card room is yes, there's the guys who it's so funny. The screen names on America's card room versus full tilt poker, like on full tilt, it would be like, Joe the pro, our future WPT star, and now it's just like I hate all of you is the name of the screen name. F you and your dog. And there's a lot of people that have given up, or they're playing. They know they're playing poker for fun now, right? And that's great. They play for fun. But the thing that's really weird to me is a guy will play nitty for three hours and he just can't fold in one random hand, and that's different than when you play with other guys where the bluff is open a little bit more often if their range is capped and they can put hand ranges together and they know that your range is very strong. Oftentimes you can earn a fold with a, a well-timed bluff, but I end up having the value bet a lot more, a lot more thinly than I would. The board comes like nine, five, four, Jack, king and i'm sitting there with nine eight going okay i think i could get three straights off of this guy and that just doesn't exist in other parts of the world right it, it would be well okay maybe my pair isn't good as much here so even with the nittier players i find myself value betting quite a bit and yeah there's a lot of people that seem to want to they play tons of tables and they play very nitty and they're doing something else or watching football or whatever it is. And then there are guys who are watching football and two-tabling, and they're really getting it in. I feel you on that. Yeah. Now, this kind of reminds me of uh, a point that you made in your book. Make sure I get the title right. Exploitative play in tournament poker? Is that In live in live poker. But in live yeah. poker. Okay. Yes, sir. So, yeah. Now, I, you know, I really enjoy reading that book. And the passion that comes out when you start talking – about poker even just a minute ago when you kind of got a little fired up just talking about the game and your love of the game really comes out in your in your writing style but one of the oh yeah you're welcome but one of the key takeaways uh from that book for me something that's really stuck with me about that book is you're of the opinion that nobody's ever going to fold anyway so you might as well size (laughs) up when you have it Yes, sir. And, <laughs> I really, I really have been working on that. <laughs> yes, sir. And particularly from the big blind, because a few years ago, when everybody was min raising all the time, it actually made a lot of sense to defend close to 100% from the big blind because you were always getting such a ridiculously good price because the opening bet was always a min raise. But mm-hmm. now some people haven't adjusted properly as the standard open is closer to 3x than it used to be. Now you find players are still defending as though it were a 2x because they don't actually understand the math behind it. Um, it so let's talk about that first. Do you find that that's kind of what's going on as far as like blind defending in, in general from a macro perspective? Yes, and it has, and in the book I did say, hey, if you open bigger, just so you know, 
most likely in a couple of years, people are going to start figuring out what you're doing because this is a very simple thing. Whereas when a play is more layered, people don't see it. Let's say you do something very tricky on the turn or you do a value bet on a specific type of river. That's something that is going to be very difficult for an opponent to see out of you multiple times. But your open size, your opponent's going to get to see it frequently. It's going to be a jab that they could time with a counter. Now, do most people do that? No. No. Because, yeah, exactly. It's something you should be aware of because I'll tell you what. When – this was something I was fascinated with because I've done so many poker lessons – and about the, and it happened all the time where somebody would be sitting down and you could look at the stats and you just knew this was a gentleman who played poker live and was very squeamish online. And their opening range was 8 8, ace, queen, offsuit, plus. And they would open to 4x every effing time pre flop. <laughs> and the funniest thing happened, which was in position, the person would have sevens or ace, 10. And they go, I can't play this. So they'd fold. But in the big blind, they'd have jack two suit. And they go, okay, so I called. And I'm like, whoa, 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 what? You did what now? And they, they go, well, I called. And I, and eventually I started figuring out their range that they call 2x with is the range they call 4x with. And if we believe humans are creatures of logic, that would make sense. But humans, if I tell you to describe a trip you took five years ago and I said, where did you eat? Name all the places you ate. You probably couldn't remember specific details of that trip. But if I said, how did that trip make you feel? You would probably have a 10,000 word essay for me. People like to feel things. And when you're in the big blind, you just feel like it's a discount. It's cheaper. I'm already invested. This guy's trying to take my money. And you don't really articulate it that way. So you call and that's when you really get a guy because if a guy calls with four X out there and he just check folds when he misses, you're going to make some considerable money. Uh, like four years back, I, I luck boxed my way to a WPT final table in Prague. And at the end, everybody I was playing with was like a 25, 50 player. And I was thinking like, yeah, this is uh, not good. But the one thing I had was the big open because the only time People were just afraid to three bet it. Now the problem is once they three bet it, they see you fold the jigs up. You go to the two X at that point, right? Unless you're on the button and the big blind's just going to keep calling you with that forex. But what kept blowing my mind was guys who were very good would just throw in the big blind call, and you would see it like a second later on their face. They go, "Oh my god, I can't believe I just did that." It's such an automatic thing that until you think about it consciously you don't really approach it with perhaps the care it requires. Now, obviously, 4X is a bit of a stretch, but I was getting away with 3.5X quite a bit because that's a very typical cash game raise size. And many people just thought, oh, okay, it's uh, he plays cash games, whatever. And I, I always wondered if it, this this is total conjecture and I have no evidence to prove this at all, but... After the 400th time I heard, hey, so-and-so's third in chips at this big final table, typically a cash game player, this is his fifth live tournament ever, I would go, is there something to that? Are they doing something we're not thinking we can do? And then there was a poker theoretician who was on 
uh, Matthew Jonda, who was just incredibly brilliant. And he started saying, you know, uh, that he thought big, there could be something under big, big raises. And he got me thinking about that. And I, I just started trying them and it would work quite often, but there's, there are guys who will know what you're doing and raising 3.5 X and then getting three bet light and then folding is a miniature disaster because three <laughs> 3.5 X in tournament poker is so expensive, but it's something that's interesting to me that, that not every flop bet you make is the same. Not every turn bet you make is the same. Not every re river bet you make is the same. Not every three bet sizing you do is the same. So I find it highly unlikely that the perfect raise size is 2x in 1,000% of situations. I don't buy that. Yeah, and I don't either. And that's why when you're playing tournaments, you really don't want to do anything by rote. It's like, well, this is my mm -hmm. standard, and I don't really know why, but this is the standard thing that I always do when I'm in this situation. I mean, it just – tournaments don't really work that way. There are so many variables to consider. Uh, likewise, in your book, you talk a lot about uh, you know, there are two spots where people are over-defending, and so you may as well size up. So the first, of course, is the big blind, and the second is when a player has opened the pot, which it seems that a lot of our opponents are doing – with way too many hands and then when they get three bet they just always call now you and i have been in this game long enough to recall that years ago you could spot a fish by he's a guy that calls three bets from out of position yes. <laughs> that yeah. was like the first right. sign that you don't know how to play this game uh you know back then three bets were so rare that you just you you either had the strength to four bet it or you just throw your hand away because the guy's got you uh and then of course we all start three betting lighter and lighter and so the adjustment has been made. But I think that adjustment has also gone to the extreme where people just never fold. Once they're in a pot, they're staying into at least till after the flop comes. And so there's a lot of money to be made that way. And that's why you're, you advise people to, uh, at least in the book anyway, you advise people to size up their three bets as well. So are you still uh, seeing that trend or uh, has, has that part of the game caught up? Oh, absolutely. I still three bet quite a bit. Now, something that you have to find is somebody who is opening too much and you still need to be in late position. So in cutoff is pushing it. Hijack is very, very optimistic and I wouldn't recommend it. And button is obviously fantastic place to do it. Uh, small blind. Okay. People are conditioned to see three bets from there a little bit. Big blind is fascinating to me because there's many regs that, they have ace-jack in the big blind. They just call automatically. They have eights in the big blind. They just call automatically. I don't want to build a big pot with this hand. I'm out of position, et cetera, et cetera. So when they see a three bet from myself in the big blind, they go, well, I would call ace-jack there. I, I would call eight-eight there. So logically, this person must have a very good hand. So I do find those spots to be very interesting as far as uh, three betting as a I guess a semi-bluff, you shouldn't go to war with just like Jack-2 offsuit, but say Jack-7 suited isn't a good enough hand to cold call with, but it works very well as a bluff. But you're looking for very specific things. Somebody opens too much, calls too much, and is more or less honest on the flop. Live, that's harder to establish. It, obviously, if you see the person go away on a number of flops, that's someone who plays pretty fit or full, but it might take some time to get that. If you just see the guy opening pretty much every time it folds around to him and he has anything halfway decent, that's a great indicator that most likely they'll get to the flop and they'll just give up. But 
Yeah, getting back to your original question, something that's really interesting to me is I think what happened is people watched a lot of poker on television and name players used to be able to get to open just about anything because people were so scared of them, everybody would fold or they would politely call and give the great pro a free flop or they would call out of the big blind and have no idea what they're doing. And when the pro got three bet, he tried to torture the guy a little bit. He knew he wasn't making much money, but he would call out a position, take his time, try to really teach you don't do that again. And it would work with a lot of these guys. And I think a lot of people saw that and they said, oh, that's the right way to play poker. But what blows my mind is someone will open to 2.5x and live people really struggle with sizings to a degree that blows my mind. You'll make it 9x and they'll just call now like you're a terrible person if you don't. And 9x is like what aces makes. Like that's like your best, that's your win rate for 100 hands. You better be defending that like it's your child. Now, there are some people who check raise quite a bit, who donk lead quite a bit, who float quite a bit, who know how to lead in to a three better that's getting out of whack. But most people, they seem to go, okay, I think this could be a bluff, but I'm going to see the flop and reevaluate from there. I, I think people just don't like open loops. That's why at the end of a Netflix series – at the end of a Netflix show, they give you the open question. Uh, every true crime show, it's like, oh, but then this piece of evidence came up and it said something very different about this possible defendant. Tune into the next episode. Then it automatically plays and you keep going. And then it's four in the morning. Open loops are really hard for people to deal with. If someone tells you the setup to a joke and then gets called away at the party and you don't hear the end of the joke, it's torturous. It's worse than if they just didn't tell you anything. And that's how people are pre-flopped. What if my Jack-9 my Jack Nine suited would have hit the flop? They'll pay anything to see the flop just to make sure that didn't happen because you feel so stupid if you would have hit, right? So if So people will pay just to make sure they didn't hit the flop. Then, okay, they missed the flop and it's like, okay, I'm done. I'm out of here. Hold on, are you kidding me? Seven, eight, nine big blinds, now I'm out of here? Like, just give up your win rate, it's gone. You have to really sweat those decisions. And it's especially preposterous when you consider the average person three bets, if you go all in pre-flop false on hand histories, are you just sort out people's three bets and you take out the all-ins? You're gonna see aces, kings, queens, jacks, and once a tournament jack nine suited. That's a very tight range. So you could be totally forgiven for folding too much to three bets. I, I think it's a fantastic spot that's still out there. Obviously, at advanced games, people are not opening wide enough that you want to be three betting too wide, but it is still something people should look into. Yeah, really great stuff there. I mean, just uh, looking at the fact that everybody seems to think that poker is getting tougher and tougher, and of course it is. I mean, there are, you know, the average player is way, way better than the average player was, let's say, 10 years ago. But I think that you've seen with your students and, you know, with the, you know, the, the volume that you're putting in Sundays or whatever, uh, there's still plenty of mistakes being made on a regular basis, and there's still plenty of money to be made, especially in tournaments, in my opinion. 
absolutely. People really struggle with loss aversion. People really struggle with, you know, when you get a tune in your head and it's driving you crazy. Like what song was that? I can't remember that. That was a song in high school. What band sang that? And then you're washing the dishes and it hits you. Oh yeah. I remember that band. And it's like the greatest relief ever. Humans don't like unanswered questions. That's why when you go to a movie and you can tell it's a turd 30 minutes in, do you walk out of a theater? No, <laughs> you see, you stay there like the sap you are just, just maybe it'll get better. Right. And that's how people play poker. They can intellectualize things a little bit more. They understand what they should be opening, what they should be three betting, what they should be calling in general. But when it comes to certain parts of the hand, when you have a guy who's just barreling into you for three, four hours, live or online, you start getting curious. What does he actually have? And it's a, it's a lot like that open loop with true crime documentaries and Netflix. Why do people, you think about it, it's pretty weird. Why do people watch true crime? It's very strange, like, oh, someone got killed. Tell me everything about it. That's a pretty weird thing, right? But the truth is, it's an open question. Who could do such a thing? That's a hell of a question. People want to know the answer. So they'll watch 22 episodes of Tiger King or whatever it is. Oh, that wasn't a long show. But, uh, you know, they'll watch 20 episodes of whatever it is to see if they can get a resolution. Sometimes they'll even know they don't get a resolution and they'll still watch it just to see if they can figure it out. And it's the same thing at the poker table. People are watching something for three, four hours. The guy just keep barreling, 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 barreling. And you really want to know if your hand will hit. It's the worst feeling in the world if you fold to a 2.5 X raise with like fives in the hijack and the board comes ace five two. Even though you have 30 X and you know you have no business calling and there's re-jam stacks behind you, it's the worst feeling in the world when the board comes ace five two. That's an open loop. I can't let that happen. So I gotta call this 2.5 X because losing the 2.5 X feels a lot worse, uh, a lot better than seeing I would have flopped this set would have felt terrible. And people just keep chasing that dopamine rush of having the right hand, having the resolution, finding out if he's the killer, finding out if you're right. And once you have that resolution, everything's better. And I think as long as these, what's that old phrase? You can trust science, but not scientists because scientists are people in scientists or I think that's, I'm butchering it, but we have to remember even though there's lots of scientific instruments in poker and there's a lot of people studying them, people get lazy and these are people you're dealing with. And they have predilections for wanting to know the answers to questions that have been asked that they don't have closure on. And they have sunk cost fallacies and they'll gamble to avoid a loss. And actually, uh, we're going to talk some poker hands. Maybe I can illustrate some of this. Should we do that? Yeah, definitely. I was just about to ask you to, and I really like the backdrop here. I love the way you find these analogies that uh, help me see things in another way and help me understand like why your philosophy of the game is uh, actually it's dramatically different from a lot of the prevailing wisdom right now. But I love this backdrop of comparing this to a murder mystery or because really <laughs> the, the word that, that comes to mind is suspense and people don't like that yeah. suspense. They want to resolve yeah. it. Suspension and resolution. That's really what we're talking about here as far as why I have to call this 
you know, nine X three bet because I have fives and I, there might be a five on the flop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that that's human nature, and it's actually a very odd human being who doesn't feel that. It's a very odd human being that goes, you know, this relationship I've been in for two years and eight months. I don't want to see it go to three years. I I you know every two days are good. Then there's a bad day. It's driving me nuts. You know the pattern. You know where it's going. But people hang on to things because of sunk cost all the time. And then, yeah, it's you want to know the answer to a question. That just drives people crazy. And people who write ad copy know this all the time. If you put a question at the beginning of a lecture in college, people will need to know the answer, even if you digress to something else. If you put a question in the subject of an email, people will open the email just to get the answer. It drives people crazy, not hearing the punchline to a joke and needing to know what's going on. I think once you start understanding emotional animals with 50,000 year old computers that we call brains are trying to play this game, you'll see why people make mistakes all the time. People are not perfect, emotionless gems that just apply things perfectly. But yeah, sorry, I... I do get very passionate about this. Forgive my digressions, people. No, man, you're getting me excited. <laughs> you make me want to go play some cards right now, I tell you. <laughs> That's my job. That's my job, man, yeah, to give you well, a new perspective, right? <laughs> I guess as close as we can come tonight is we could talk through a hand or two. Now, are these going to be hands that you played, or are these like taken yeah. from your students? Or Yeah, these are hands I played. So uh, let, me, let me set you guys up on this one, and let me uh, try to get every detail so it's easy to remember. So... I'm actually clicking through the hand right now so I can make sure I've got it. So I'm playing against a good reg. I think might be a little too passive in certain occasions, but he's played pretty well so far. And this is a $30 tournament with just about 2 billion runners on America's card room. So I can't remember how many runners, but we're uh, very deep at the beginning. The blinds are 275, 550 uh, with an Annie of 70. I have... 47,085. My opponent has 47,455. And that's the beginning of the hand. It gets folded to us in the small blind. Uh, again, the blinds are 275,550. And I raise with pocket eights. Okay. I raise, yeah, you good? Yeah, so let me stop you here. So just to uh, kind of put some, a little bit of color on it. So you have about what, 90? Is this 90 big blinds we're playing here? Yes, sir. That's about right. Yeah, it's just at the beginning of the tournament, and we're like, yeah, we have like 90x okay. to begin with. Yeah, now yes, these sir. ACR tournaments, for those who don't play on that site, they have these ridiculous blind levels, 275, 550, 70, and, you know, <laughs> yeah. they, I don't know why they do that. They give you a ton of chips, and then they do these ridiculous, like, odd numbers and, and weird things, so... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it gets awkward, right? Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, we're deep, we're deep stacked, and we're obviously it's it's uncontroversial to say we're going to open a pair of eights here. And yes, what's sir? our position again? We are in the small blind. The villain is in the big blind. We'll keep it real simple. Okay, so it folds all the way around, and we we're first in. Yes, sir. All so right. we ra- we raise to I I make it sixteen fifty without belaboring this point. I I'm fine building a pot here, yeah. and he. He goes ahead and calls because he's been a little more passive. I, I'm liking that even out of position, although I don't love being uh, I, I don't love being out of position. So he calls. All right. So it's the, a three X open from the small blind and a call and we're both really deep. Yes, sir. And there's now 
3,800 in the middle, you have, we have 45,000. And the board comes eight of diamonds, six of spades, three of hearts. We have eight of hearts, eight of spades. What would you like to do here? Well, um, it's always nice to flop the nuts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, you know, I think that you're going to see bet this board when you have ace high. You're going to see bet this board a lot. Um, so I would just, I wouldn't do anything tricky here. I would probably just bet like around half the pot. You know, not to not to go to a default, but I don't I don't want to give away that I have a monster, but I also don't want to check because. There's which we've got so many chips to try to win here and people call with any piece. So if he flopped middle pair or draw, he, there are several draws available. And a lot of these guys will even call you with a gut shot, even if you bet relatively big. So, yeah, I don't see any reason to uh, get tricky with it. I would just go ahead and see bet with the with the top set. Yes, sir. I agree with you here, which is that. The average person, theoretically, his big blind calling range should be monstrous. So we should be firing quite a bit on this board regardless. So to mask how often we're doing this with nothing, leading with top set would just be great. But also, if we're thinking about this from an exploitative standpoint, the, the idea is how much can we bet where like King 10 high that wants to see another card doesn't blank, just goes, okay, cool. I call because if we get that, that's a lot of value. And we would love it if that person turned a pair. So I tend to think I agree with you. Like half pot or under tends to be what people don't blink at. If you go to two thirds pot, a lot of people go, okay, let me think now because that's not a normal bet. So I didn't like that. So I went ah, exactly half pot, 1925 into 3860. And he calls me very quickly within two seconds. Yes. Great. So, so he called. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Let me just jump in because uh, you know we're loving this. Uh, first of all, I love that you did exactly what I would have done. That's always nice when the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When the, I agree uh, <laughs> with me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I do love on the rare occasion that the uh, TPE coach is on the same page as I am. That's always a nice, uh, reassuring uh, feeling for me. But uh, you know, on a serious note, I think that uh, the quick call is important. Like uh, he didn't have to think about it too much. Um, he could have an open ender. He could have uh, any piece, like I said, any piece of the board. And sometimes they call extra quickly because uh, they just they have no intention of folding. Like, what if he has like pocket fours? It's like you know, I'm definitely going to take one off. I know Alex is going to fire so many times on this board. I'm just going to take one off and see what happens on the turn. And sometimes they do it very quickly to try to discourage you from firing again when you're bluffing because they don't they don't have enough to call another bet with. So yes. now I don't know this particular player, but sometimes you can get a little bit of uh, a timing tell by by the quick call. But the the main thing is he doesn't he's very unlikely to have a set himself because what I yes. tend to see on ACR especially is when they flop really big, they tend to like you know pretend to use their time. At, oh, what should I do? You know. So if this guy had bottom set here, I don't think that that quick call would be in in his range. I agree with you. Actually, the way I got killed by this German player when I was playing with him a few years back is he just snapped me with top set. And I was like, ha, he capped his range. And I just fired off three streets like hopelessly. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, I I was like, wow, that was really good. He clearly, and he didn't like, 
there was no acting either. He did it like very confidently. Like I like my pair. I'm going to call down with my pair. And I was like, Oh great. You won't call down with this pair. You're too smart. And then, Oh no, you're smarter than me. Yeah. But uh, anyway, yeah. Sorry. You were saying something. I didn't mean to talk over you. No, you're great. Uh, just anything, anytime I, I give anybody advice about, Oh yeah, this could mean this or that could mean that. If you mouse over their, their player uh, emblem, their, uh, their avatar, and uh, you see the word Germany, just take what I said and throw it out the window. <laughs> yeah, that's what I learned. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was not fun. And Now, and anyway, uh, dealing with an American here, most likely, thank God. So, yeah, we are, we'll know that as we continue. So the turn is the ace of diamonds. There is 7,710 in the middle. We have 43,785 back. He has us covered. The board right now is six of spades, eight of diamonds, three of hearts, ace of diamonds. What would you like to do here? Okay, so uh, th- there's a backdoor flush draw that just showed up. Um, there's also an ace. Uh, I- I'm not crazy about the ace. I feel like it could end up being an action killer for us a lot. I mean, of course, our opponent could have an ace, and maybe like optimistically could have made like, top and bottom pair with it or whatever. But in all likelihood he doesn't have a lot of aces in his range because some of those aces may have even three bet us before the flop. So we have to discount that the, I mean, the ace is probably a bad card for us getting more action. And so for that reason, I would usually check and uh, check call here or check Mm -hmm. expecting it to check back a lot and then try to go for the little value bet on the river. Uh, I'm not crazy about this card, and I don't think that it, it helps us get paid very often. So I don't so like it. I, okay, so I bet 10,733 chips into 7,710. What do you think? Okay, so I, I like this. <laughs> I, it's obviously, on the other extreme, you're betting 150% of the pot. Um, and now you're you're doing the optimism thing, right? Here Now here you want him to have at least a pair of aces. Um, you want him to have two pair bottom set like you want him to to have something to call you with and you know what's good about that is now you can actually consider playing for stacks on the river if you get action here um and so you're kind of taking the the lower percentage but higher payout route right yes. because well, th- if he has yeah. if he has two pair he, he's not folding to any bet and so that's kind of the best case scenario is that he made two pair with this card, which would be awesome, obviously. Yes. So, well, here was how I looked at it, which is the big blind calling range versus the small blind is a specialized situation. And let's go with, I, I was going to go from a theoretical standpoint, but I, I, well, let's just talk about exploitative to begin with. When he calls us on this flop, what he has is ace high, weak pair, middle pair, a pocket pair below top pair, or top pair, very very unlikely, obviously, because we have two eights. And that's a pretty, none of those hands really like calling on the turn. But what's really interesting is I don't, this is a very exploitative play, and I find it interesting, I don't see it more, which is, Combinatoric wise, like combination wise, his most likely hand on the flop is an ace high. 
if you think about it, and if he obviously if he has King I, he's not calling another bet regardless. If he has a six, he's probably not calling much. But his combination wise, his most likely hand on the flop is ace high. Because think about it, when small blind opens, you guys are impossibly deep. You call out of the big blind with ace high, and the board comes eight, six, three, rainbow. With ace two, are you even folding? Most likely not, right? Yeah, I guess I do. So maybe I'm. You do? Okay. Maybe I'm too nitty, especially early in a tournament. I don't see any reason to call with ace high when you don't really even have a backdoor or anything. I stated the question incorrectly. Let me put it this way Do we think the average person folds an ace high blind versus blind? Well, yeah. On a dry board. Yeah, that's a different question. And I guess. I guess the field at large in a $30 tournament with 8 million players in it on ACR, I guess you are getting a lot of ace high calls, even with like a weak ace high. So, yeah, and now if he finally got there on the turn, he might be suspicious of your over bet, but he's definitely not holding <laughs> to it. I mean, he, he exactly. hit his card. Very, yes, yes. Well, and that was the thing I was thinking is, okay, let's take a big blind calling range here, which is – somewhat controlled so we have like seven six offsuit on up the king queen offsuit uh ace deuce offsuit up to ace jack offsuit we have all the suited aces we have king queen suited on down we have all the unsuited broadways we have the suited gappers 10 six suited plus seven four suited plus six three suited uh plus five three suited plus four three suited plus and we have uh the pairs nines through two so if we look at that range when he calls us on that flop, and let's assume he calls with open-ended straight draws, gut shots, uh, over cards that could turn into something, so like backdoors, uh, ace highs, weak pairs, middle pairs, pocket pair, below top pair, and uh, top pair, what percentage, well, what hand do you think he has the most of? It's ace highs. 25% of those combinations are ace highs. The weak pairs are not one out of 10 hands here. The middle pairs are not one out of 10 hands here. His most likely hand on the flop is ace high combination wise because, well, it's a dry board. I don't really think he has it. I want to float. What high card is most attractive? It's the ace high. He has ace deuce offsuit in his range. He does not have king deuce offsuit in his range. So even if he wants to call us with more kings, he can't logically do it because he doesn't have them from the beginning if he folded some of them. So he has primarily ace, ace highs here. And this is an exploitative play I do all the time, and it works a ton because when we put out that – I'm doing it with Flopzilla right here, so I'll read it out to you guys. So we put that ace of diamonds on that turn. What we're going to find out is he has top pair – 19.7% of the time. He has two pairs, 6.4% of the time, if we just had him floating with the, what I've just discussed. And he only has middle pair, or weak, he has a weak pair 16% of the time. And remember, if we're trying to keep, if we're going to try to do these acrobatics to keep middle pair in, I don't even know if we're going to get that, right? Like if we go bet, check the turn, bet river, we might get a little something, but we might not. He's still totally capable of folding. Whereas, I think you said it right there, who the hell is going to call with ace seven of hearts on this board thinking, okay, I got a little back door. I've got a, you know three to a straight. Hit the ace, see the overbet, and go, 
I'm out of here. Right. Is that going to, yeah, are, are you going to feel kind of dumb if you do that? Again, you're watching the movie. You know it's a turd. You know how it's going to end, but you can't walk out because, <laughs> damn it, I bought the ticket, right? <laughs> and, yes, yeah. Anyway, anyway uh, sorry, you were going to say something. I didn't mean, didn't mean to cut you off. No, I'm just kind of enjoying the, uh, you know, the continuation of your beautiful analogy there with the movie. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I was thinking – he doesn't have a lot of ace high uh, because we bet half the pot on the flop. Uh, I think he has more ace high when we bet lower on the flop. Uh, That's a good point. Yeah, but but you know, you didn't bet the pot. I mean, you bet half, and some players will look at a half pot bet about the same as they would a quarter size pot bet. So, uh, yeah, I like it. I like it. And, you know, the key is you have a big hand, and you may as well be optimistic. And now that you can you know, kind of put your things into the, uh, or put the different hands into the Flopzilla or whatever kind of solver program we want to use. And you can see that it's actually that high of a percentage. We have cause for optimism and especially knowing that he's in position with top pair and he's, he's very likely to call this bet. It's if you float the flop and then you get there on the turn, how many of us can actually lay down even to an over bet? I don't think, I don't think you see that a lot in a $30 tournament on ACR. No, definitely. And I know most of the people listening to this podcast and most people who play recreationally, it is $30 tournaments, $50 tournaments. And that's where you get a lot of people playing for fun. A lot of people, they'll they'll spend 30 bucks just to see if you're full of it just because they've never seen it before. What is this? I just have to know. And it's like, and you can almost hear the buddies they have in their discord group going, did you really call on the flop with ACE five to fold on that turn? You know, there's so much judgment for making a thin fold. Whereas when you call down, you just go, I had to see it. Nobody even cares. You hold the hand over the muck. Nobody cares. There's no judgment. Think how crazy that is. Someone saying, let me give you money for free. Call, see the hand. There you go. Putting it in the muck. How, how does that work? How is that totally cool? But Here's the thing that's really interesting to me. I, I thought this was just exploitative fun for a long time. And just me flipping through Flopzilla and going like, ha I bet since he's got an ace most of the time, I bet he'll never fold it that. I even get called by weaker sometimes just because people, they're so gung-ho to call, they don't really realize how much you bet right away. And they just go, this is what, what, what is, and they call a little too quick or, they get angry and they call a little too quick. But I, I actually have friends who are teaching me more of the GTO side of the game. And when you lock in conditions, it's interesting how often they'll just say like, oh yeah, overbet, he's not folding, <laughs> right? And that's just interesting. Or if you give it, if you, uh, they're telling me that when there are options where bigger bets are allowed, it's interesting how often those can be explored. I don't want to... I, I don't know if I quoted that exactly right, so don't take me verbatim on that. But it's amazing how often big bets can be explored when we get into these situations where we probably weren't getting much from a six anyway. He probably didn't have a ton of sixes because if you think about preflop, he probably folded 6-10 offsuit. He probably folded jack-6 offsuit. But did he fold ace-10, ace-7, ace-2, any, any ace? You know, 6-3 offsuit he folded, 6-4. So there's not, combination-wise, a ton of sixes we could keep in. The three was already out of the park when we were firing the turn 
regardless of the bet size, not getting a ton from a six, not getting anything from a three. The draws were probably gone. What we're getting called by, statistically speaking, is an ace. Why do we bet half pot? Do we want this guy to keep his chips? Is he just that nice of a guy? Do we not want to win the tournament? <laughs> it's a, it, it, I don't, sorry, sorry if I'm uh, talking quite a bit, but these are the things I think of all the time. But uh, no, a, I'm, anyway, I'm, yeah, Alex, I'm sitting here, I'm listening to you, I'm smiling, I'm loving this, I mean, <laughs> just the way that you look at this game. But now let me push back just a little bit on the GTO part, since you brought up GTO, and some people may mistakenly see the title of your book. And say, oh, well, this is a guy that doesn't care about game theory. So it might be interesting to some of our listeners that the guy who wrote Exploitative Play in Live Poker is now working with some of these uh, GTO bots. And I think that maybe a misconception that some people have is that you are either exploitative or you are looking at the game from a, trying to play you know, in a theoretically sound mm -hmm. way. Um so let me ask a question that will kind of illuminate what I'm what I'm driving at here. Uh, would you make this bet with any bluffs at all, or when you overbet in this turn? I mean, can you think of a hand that you would have that's not uh, a very strong hand that that overbets here? No, but I am gambling a lot of money that he does not know that. Right. That's and, that's that's. But to go back to your earlier consideration which is a very good one i believe it was acevedo who said uh game theory optimal is just when two players are maximally exploiting each other and i thought that was just one of the most beautiful sentences i ever heard when it came to this game because yeah that that's what it means is both players just optimize perfectly against each other now considering this is a game of humans that make mistakes if they get unbalanced you can capitalize on that. But yes, when you do, you cannot exploit others without becoming exploitable yourself. So let's put it this way. Let's say I did believe this guy had a fold of ace five. Then the question then becomes, why am I not firing overbetting with king queen here all the time? That would be the question, right? And I do think... Uh, What's, I try to cite my sources so you guys don't think I'm coming up with this on my, uh, what was it? I think it's the Bible that says there's wisdom in many advisors. I, I find it really interesting to hear the other side. Exploitative play in live poker, I wrote because it's really fun to help people win and load amid stakes. And a lot of the same plays in my playbook work again and again and again. And this is one of them, admittedly. This is horribly unbalanced. If he knew that I couldn't do this as a bluff. He really should be folding his aces. But the thing is, this is professional gambling. I'll put a lot of money down on him not being able to do that, right? <laughs> right. This, is, this is a prop bet. This is a very elaborate prop bet. It just so happens we threw the chips and the cards in there. But no, the, the things I really love is I, I really – you brought up my passion for the game. The reason I'm very passionate about this game, well, one, this game gave me everything. I, I really didn't have that exciting or that interesting of a life before poker. And now I've gotten to travel the world and live in a lot of different places. So I'm very appreciative of that. But I really like competition and I don't exactly have the physique for boxing or the reflexes for baseball. So it's really cool to me that I could do this 
to my 80s if I just eat halfway decent and decide to walk around the block a few times. So I do get very passionate about it. And the great thing is, I think you shouldn't just listen to me. You shouldn't, uh, if I can go on one digression that I think is really important, every day since the beginning of COVID-19, this is something Scott Adams said. And ever since he said it, I can't uh, not remember it. And he said the scientist, scientist thing earlier, by the way. I forgot to cite him there. You, every day you see two studies come out, one that says masks work and one that say masks don't work. <laughs> so, when, so when they tell you trust the experts, I, I believe the way he put it, he said, do you have a magical effing sense, a magical effing limb that tells you what expert is telling you the truth? We trust science, but do you have science in your house? If you do have like an instrument that records something, do you understand how it works? No, you you don't know what expert is right immediately until you do more investigation. So you shouldn't just trust me. You shouldn't just trust the GTO guys. You should do everything yourself. And then when you have something you're very sure of, find someone who can criticize it on a very good level and that'll make your ideas stronger. And that's why... I mean, without getting into too many debates, you should always, I, I, with, without getting into too many points, I think that's why healthy debate is so important and why we have to get better at that. And I, I think it's really weird, this binary thing, you're in the GTO camp or you're in the exploitative camp. I think a lot of the great GTO practitioners would probably tell you they go off script all the time when they see the guys unbalanced, and that's how they make money from poker. Yeah, of course, you know, GTO doesn't maximize profitability. It just maximizes, uh, what is it, protection. It's like you're protecting yourself from not being exploited by playing mm-hmm. the GTO style. If you play perfect, in quotation marks, but if you play GTO like a bot, uh, you, you basically can't lose. But it doesn't do stuff like maximizing how much you can win. So it's yes. different. You know, that's where the yeah, exploitative side comes in. So, yeah. Now, uh, another question about this turn card here, um, kind of related yes, to this. So you wouldn't make this play if the turn comes a queen or something. It's got to be because it's the ace. And yes, you, sir. you know he has so many ace highs that are now have uh, a top pair. And you just you know that you're always getting action from those hands. So that's a perfect card for you to, to barrel, uh, you know, really big here, uh, 150%. pot on the turn, which yeah, you you don't see that. So a lot of times players that are on that site every day and then they see that like, what does this mean? Uh, I don't know, but I have an ace. I'm not folding it. So exactly, exactly. And this is a very special situation because let's say I was in the cutoff and he was the big blind and this board came eight, six, three and he check calls. Now I'm not gambling. Ace two is in his range. A lot of the time or ace five is in his range all of the time or ace seven is in his range all of the time. But small blind versus big blind, people just do not like to fold. And it hit me like a rock when I was seeing this hand. Oh, this is going to be the best exploit of the night. I can't wait to show this. And to go back to your GTO analogy, GTOs is like to me, the when I've played with GTO players, I really respect. It's like dealing with a Floyd Mayweather. Every time you think you got them, you don't. It's like just beautiful defense, and then they get you out of sorts somewhere, and they attack. And I, I think I, I have a lot of respect for that. That's really fun when I've got, I've had the opportunity to play with great GTO practitioners. But if you're playing in a cash game and you've got a guy 
who just came in out of the club and you he clearly struck out at the club and he's eight Red Bull and vodkas deep and he's calling with just anything. Well, he, literally, he calls with anything out of the big blind. Well, you should never raise as a bluff. And when you have aces, you should make it 10, 20 X or whatever he's going to call. It's too totally exploitable, but that guy's not going to notice. Now, this guy, actually, this reg, he plays pretty good most of the time. I just, I, I didn't think he was going to be able to fold the ace because, like we said, the Discord group, like you called with a seven to fold on the turn. What were you thinking? So, yeah, I bet big and to put a bow on this. Uh, he called the river was the queen of spades. There's 29,000 in the middle. You have 33,000 back. What would you like to do at this point? Well, we may as well just stick it all in. <laughs> That's what yes, I we did. He had a, he had a really surprising hand, which is still kind of a bluff catcher. If you think about it, he had an ace queen here and he called, Wow. and, uh, which I didn't, he, uh, and by the way, there was no thinking on the turn. It was just actually, I, you know, I, my bad. I'm not sure if that was what happened. I did have, he had a really quick call. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about is when he called really quick on the flop, I thought that made it more likely he had ace highs because if you had like a combo draw, or excuse me, not a combo draw, but if you had a draw, you would go like, maybe I should raise here because he's probably not, he probably doesn't have anything most of the time. Or if you had a pair with something really nice, maybe you would think that. But I thought a lot of the draws were probably needing to take a second whether to raise or not. A lot of the other, the, the remaining eight in the deck might think about raising for value or anything like, I, I thought it was primarily ace highs. I thought it was primarily high cards when he just beats us into the pot because in my experience, a lot of the time, in these $30 tournaments, that's you. Don't you dare bet again on the turn. I like my hand. So I was like, oh, okay, that tends to not be a pair. So I thought he had this ace a lot on the turn. And yeah, going back to the passion thing, this just feels like a home run whenever you stack somebody. You're, like the average win rate is like eight big blinds, nine big blinds, 10 big blinds per 100 hands. If you had one hand where you could make 192 big blinds and you just gave it away because you were trying to sucker in the four or five for another bet, which might be folding, or the three for another bet that might probably is folding anyway, or the six that there's not even that many combinations from, that makes me physically ill. I really have been looking for these knockout shots for my students a lot more recently, and they've been having a lot more final tables, a lot more success. I've been having way more deep runs than I expected have been more more or less not streaky like I used to be, especially if you go to any site where people are even, you know, there are softer sites, even stateside than ACR, right? <laughs> no, there's, For uh, sure. There, yeah, there's some regs on this site. There are other sites where they, it's just, hey, I've got a pair and I'm calling down. Screw you. Yeah, no doubt about it. Wow, God, this is great, Alex. I mean, like I said before, it gets me excited. Like, whenever I talk to you about poker, like, it's contagious how much you love the game. It just makes me want to play, and makes me want to play better. And the next time I play, I'm going to see, well, is this a spot where Alex might recommend me trying to hit a home run here instead of just trying to eke out a few extra big blinds from this guy that has a marginal hand? Maybe we can try to exploit the fact that he can't fold top pair if he just got there. So... Let's see if we can swing for the fences more 
Yeah, I love that. And that, that could like just add another dimension of profitability to to my tournament game. So, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing your insights. This is huge. Oh, you're quite welcome. Yeah, a, a great if you guys want to extrapolate this beyond just this specific hand, you guys have played poker for a long time. And I'm very happy I could get you wanting to look for these spots because there's a lot of them. If you look, if you start thinking, there are situations in poker where you know nobody likes to fold. This is an obvious one, right? Small blind versus big blind. Who likes to fold anything here? Who even likes folding a six there? You know, it's like clearly this guy's just trying to rep the overcard on the turn. I don't know if I'm going anywhere. If you ever find yourself in a spot where you think people might not be looking at bet sizes that critically, Remember, it's called no limit hold'em for a reason. It's not called half pot hold'em. It's not called pot limit hold'em. You are allowed to bet big when this guy, when you believe this guy is not capable of folding. Opening your mind to that, especially in small stakes tournaments, low stakes tournaments, $30 tournaments, $50 tournaments, you'll still find, you'll start finding them again and again and again. I'll tell you what, once you get back to live, you'll find it's the same people playing $50 tournaments online who are playing 1Ks live. tournaments live and then you can get those really nice big pots and really punish people going down the stretch in tournaments and really punish the bubble i love it i love it all right well we do we're out of time but i wanted to ask you before we let you go um you know you have a number of videos up on tpe uh if someone's not that familiar with you and your philosophy and maybe like listening to this podcast is their first introduction to you uh, which video would you recommend uh, they check out first on our site? I would go ahead. Whenever I'm reviewing another player's hand history, that's always a really good one because I keep the questions to the stuff that if you consistently ask yourself as you're playing, you're going to play better. Now, I'm going to let you guys know I use a trick. I use a super condescending voice in those videos. Now, the reason I do that... <laughs> <laughs> the reason I do that, it, uh, it's a shtick. I am performing. This is my day job. It is my job to get you playing better. My job is not to be your friend. It's to get you playing better. And if someone's ever said something super condescending to you in a Starbucks before, you probably can remember that to this day. If someone has said something super condescending to you at work, you can remember that to this day, every word verbatim. So what do you think happens when I say something super condescending to you over and over and over again in the same spot? You're going to remember it. Now, I try to take great care and prepare before I show up and ask you the questions that are going to get you playing to make more money and to have more fun with this game and to be getting the results that you want. But anytime we're dealing with the low stakes tournaments, me reviewing another player I really go in on trying to get you to that next level. So great. This is so great, Alex. Uh, if people want to reach out to you directly, do you welcome that? And how should they go about doing that? Yes, sir. Uh, my email address is alex at pokerheadrush.com. Feel free to write in. All right. So alex at pokerheadrush.com. Alex, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Everybody loves when you're uh, my special guest. And I just really appreciate you taking the time today. Happy to be here. It was a total pleasure. So for Alex Fitzgerald and for everyone else here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you guys so much for listening.
hold them like they do in Texas plays Fold them, let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me Lock in intuition, play the cards with babes to start And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart Love nobody. 